Welcome to the Run Run Live 3.0 podcast, where we celebrate the transformational powers of endurance sports. Tis the happy song. Sorry. The fog on my sunglasses was not evaporating. I had pushed them down to the edge of my nose to let the biting wind defrost them, but it was too cold now, and instead of clearing, the fog on the lenses froze. I took them off and tried to rub the fog and sweat off with equally sweaty and frozen gloves, creating a kaleidoscopic smear. The dairy race was beginning its expected and heartless assault. I tried to focus on my posture and stride and form, but my legs were aching, and I felt myself hunching into the cold, leaning and trudging. I felt awful. We weren't even halfway. We hadn't entered the consuming and giant hills that begin at mile 9 and last through mile 12. But apparently we had turned a corner and come out from under cover because there was a biting headwind flash freezing the sweat in my clothes. I had thought I was overdressed in the first few miles, where cover and a tailwind conspired to force me to shed my hat and gloves, and to unzip my sweater and top most of my two long-sleeved tech shirts. I had been dripping, soaking through the material, grossly overheated in the winter sun. Now, I, just as quickly, re-zipped and slapped the sodden hat back on my head with wetted gloves. I've run this race at least a dozen times, and it still has the ability to make me miserable. Brian and I drove up in the morning with the temperature just teasing into the double digits Fahrenheit. The forecast was for mid-teens and a stiff breeze, otherwise it was a beautiful sunny day in the hometown of Robert Frost and his westward running brook. This time of year it's not uncommon to get some interesting weather. We've run this race in colder weather and raging snowstorms. That is just the way New England is in January. We contemplated what and how much to wear. We visited the outside porta potties, listening to and feeling the icy wind gust up and around our shivering legs. Brian and I are both recovering from years of hardcore training and both trying to find some peace in our relationship with running, racing, and our local friend, the Boston Marathon. We wanted to go out slow. But neither of us could manage to find any comfortable pace in the early miles. We kept looking at our red line heart rates in disbelief and wondering whether it was the cold or the hills, or were we actually working that hard? The first couple miles, my heart rate was in zones that don't even exist. Finally, somewhere in the fourth mile, Brian pulled off down a dirt road that I've seen him use before as a bio break. I thought that was a grand idea, and pulled over to bless a large tree a half mile further down the road. This gave me a chance to relax a bit and to try to settle into a sustainable pace for the next couple miles as I battled the overheating. The middle miles were miserable as my legs were aching and tired from the early abuse, and the wind turned my sweat to ice. Then we hit the hills. Full miles of uphill battling through 9, 10, 11, 12. I slowed and did some walking and invoked my run-walk cadence, learned in my mountain and ultramarathon dalliances. I knew the hills were coming, but that did not make these monsters any friendlier. Happy to be out the backside of the elevation gain, I began to get a little form back now, but it was really cold. We were heading directly into it with no cover. My hat was frozen solid with big chunks of ice. I pulled the hood of my fleece up to see if I could melt it a bit, but to no avail. Through the final miles, it was hard, but not too bad. I was passing people who were suffering worse than I, and even managed to stretch out a little kick in the final mile. It helped to be so familiar with the course. In an odd moment, as I took the corner into the last short, steep hill, into the finish, my iPod shuffled into a Bruno Mars song that I must have gotten for free from Starbucks because I don't even like Bruno Mars. Picture me, huffing and frozen at the end of a 16-mile monster of a race, suffering from the wrong music at the wrong time. I powered through the finish and went off to find some warm food. 
Hello and welcome to episode 3-254 of the Run Run Live podcast. Today we have a great show for you. Today I chat with Dave Spandorfer, who started a company to leverage his running to change the world. It's a great chat. I think you will like it. As you heard, I have been training and racing, including the wonderfully punishing Derry Boston Prep 16 miler last weekend. I made it sound miserable for dramatic tension. You know how it is. I'm very creative that way. When the dust settled, even though I could have executed with a bit more grace, I was right in line with where I expected to be, and I know what I have to work on. I know the work I have to do to get ready for Boston. I did go out way too fast, and there was a fair amount of good-natured suffering, and I do love this race for its ability to humble me. That's what life's about. What is life without worthy opponents? You know I don't like race reports? So here is my alternate race report in free verse. Frozen plumes of wet New England breath coat the world and sting the chest. Monk-like we stumble, tired we strive, frozen, wet, sweat, stinging the eyes. Dry, crisp, biting cold, sucked deep and coughed wide. Stark low sun entreats from shallow horizon, kissing the cold dirt and snow. Grizzled and bearded, beaten and windburned, we smile fiercely at the ice, our tormentor. The weather can't break us. We are made of stronger stuff. We are wood and bone and steel and stone. We are indestructible. On with the show! Are you hungry? Here's some food for thought. Okay, my friends, I'm going to change gears a little bit from the theoretical stuff and give you something very tactical. This piece is called Life Balance and the Tactical Necessity of Organizing Your Weeks. And in the last three posts or the last three conversations, we've talked about some very high-level life balance concepts. But today I'm going to go all the way in the other direction and give you a practical method to manage your weeks and days. And why do you care? Well, you care if you always feel like you're running behind and you feel like you're not getting anything done and not getting anywhere towards your goals. Everyone has too much to do and not enough time to do it in, but it helps to have a system to get things done. And by getting things done, I don't mean getting to the end of your to-do list by the end of the day. I mean getting to the end of your to-do list and accomplishing some things that over the long haul will bring progress, meaning, and purpose to your life. I would rather have you be proactive in the way you approach your life than reactive. Because when you're reactive, chances are that you're giving up control. You're abdicating your free will to someone or something else. And I want you to work off your agenda, not someone else's. I want you to become the tactical center of gravity in your interactions with your peer group, whether in the office or at home. Does that make sense? What I'm really trying to give you is the gift of control to enable you. Let's begin with the assumption that you're one of those smart people who make an effort to write down your goals. You have some short-term, maybe some long-term goals. And in order to move towards those goals, you need to take action. And action takes the form of tasks and projects. And I've talked to you before about the distinction between tasks and projects. And you need to understand that when you write down your to-do list for a day or for a week, you will be or should be writing tasks. Some of those tasks will be part of a larger project. Those larger projects will be the things that support and move you towards your goals. This is an important distinction because if, you, if your to-do list contains projects like paint the house with no associated tasks or steps, you won't get them done and you'll become frustrated and, and disempowered. It's a critical skill to be able to recognize the difference between a task and a project. So I carry with me five basic lists that I update each week and each day, and also on the fly. And I do this on paper, actual paper, like loose pieces of paper. But, if, but you can feel free to digitize it if that's better for you and the way you do it. I have no problem with that. I just find that to be an extra step and, it, and to constrain my thinking a bit. I'd rather have a nice big blank tableau. The first list I have is labeled work tasks at the top. 
and these are all the things that I have to get done. This is my work to-do list, and an example might be scan cards into LinkedIn. So what does this mean? So this means at some point during the week, I'll take all the business cards I've collected on my trips and scan them, and I'll upload that list into LinkedIn, which is a, a networking site, and invite those people to connect into my professional network. All right, so that's a task. But let's think about this for a second. Why am I doing this? I'm doing this because I understand the business value of these contacts, and one of my longer-term goals is to consistently expand my professional network. This adds value to my career. So this task, as simple as it is, is aligned with a higher-level goal. This alignment is important because, let's face it, scanning business cards is never going to be an urgent task. No customer or partner is ever going to be on the phone yelling at me because I forgot to scan my business cards. If I didn't prioritize it because it aligns with a longer-term goal, it would never make it to the top of the list and would never get done. The flip side of this is true as well. There are urgent tasks that you will discover have no impact on your longer-term goals, and maybe they can be deprioritized or reprioritized. An example might be do my expenses, approve timesheets. These really have no higher-level meaning. <laughs> But they're part of the necessity of bureaucratic life. And as an aside, when you see tasks that do not align with a higher level value, those are great candidates to outsource to someone else. The second list I have is labeled work projects. An example of this might be, oh, write a white paper on XYZ. So this is a project, not a task. This is something I, can, I, I can't just knock off. I have to do some research and, and write some notes and drafts before I can deliver this project. It might be a full day's worth of work. I don't know. I won't know until I start. And I have to do some planning for that project. But each of those things, research, notes, drafts, those are tasks. And I can add those and schedule those into my day or my week, thus leading to a project completion at some point in support of this goal. So the reason... The distinction between projects and tasks is really important is that it'll keep you from getting frustrated and from getting a bunch of stuff halfway done. It'll help you manage all your balls that you have in the air without losing control. If you just drop write a white paper on your task list, you'll end up staring at it for a few minutes, then ignoring it, skipping to the next task that you can actually execute, and you won't get it done ever. So got it? Good. So list one and two work tasks, work projects. I keep this with me so that when I'm on the phone with a coworker or in a plane or in the car somewhere at a client and some new task or project comes up, I can capture it. By having them all on the list, I can visually prioritize. And some projects may never get done, but they will not get done by choice, by my prioritization, not by chance and external pressures. So you see how that works? It's a very simple device that puts you in the driver's seat. And the next two lists are the same thing, just for personal stuff. So I have a list of personal tasks and a list of personal projects. A uh, personal task might be workout. All right, so today I have to work out. So workout might be one of the things on today's list. A personal project might be create a new website for XYZ. That's going to take a lot of time, a lot of intermediate steps. And again, I may not get everything done on my task list. I may not get everything done on my project list, but what I do get done will be what I have chosen to get done. The truth we all know is that there's only so much time, and you can't do everything, even if you wanted to. You need to use time efficiently and prioritize. Perhaps the most valuable thing about these lists, for me anyhow, is that it moves those tasks and projects out of my brain and into a secure holding area so that I don't need to be constantly reviewing them subconsciously. I don't need to worry or fret about them. This constant subconscious review of all these things will keep you awake at night. If your subconscious knows they're accounted for, it can relax, and you'll sleep better knowing that everything is accounted for. This also allows me to think about my tasks and projects and how I will approach them. For example, this post was on one of my lists for the last few weeks. I have been able 
to form the outline of it in my mind, and that makes for a faster and higher quality first draft. It helps me be more efficient by mentally organizing it ahead of time and using that subconscious energy to organize instead of using it to try to remember everything. I've gotten my cue. So a fifth list that I keep is a catch-all for ideas, and I label it simply ideas. And I have one for work and one for personal. I am either cursed or blessed with an active mind, and I'm always coming up with interesting thoughts. And when they come up, I write them down on the idea list. They may turn into a task or a project or a blog post or may never come to fruition. But whatever happens, I capture them and come back to them when appropriate. For those ideas that become projects, I may start a separate list, a separate folder of ideas specifically for that project. What are the tasks that need to be done? What are the constraints? What are the prerequisites? Who do I need to talk to? Those are my lists. That's great, but how do I use these lists to stay on top of things and become the center of gravity in my peer group? Well, here is how to use your list to manage your days and your weeks and your life balance. Sunday night, that's right, I said Sunday night. Sit down and review your calendar for the week. Review your lists of tasks and projects and start to loosely schedule in what you're going to execute. And take whatever steps and do whatever communication you need to do to get a jump on the week. So start shooting out some emails, maybe. I know you value your free time, but successful people get ahead by spending a little bit of time planning their weeks in advance. The simple act of reviewing your calendar, your tasks, and your projects for the week will allow you to plan instead of react. Go ahead and try it for a couple of weeks. Instead of showing up for work Monday morning and getting overwhelmed by incoming crap, you can be the one in control and managing that crap. This also sends a very effective message to the people that you interact with. If they see you organizing your week ahead of time on Saturday or Sunday, they will get the message that you care about what you do and you are taking steps to do it well. In a sense, you're you're managing your professional avatar. You're saying, yeah, I'm that kind of person. And that puts you in a different club. So along the same line of thinking and action, Successful people also repeat this planning session each morning when they start their day. You take out your task list, you take out your project list, you take out your calendar for the day, and you come up with the basic outline of a plan on how that day is going to play out. Even if you can't do it every day, a couple times a week will still help. Even if your day gets blown up by events outside your control, you can still manage the reschedule and recover much more effectively. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Chris, this sounds like extra work, but it isn't. The amount of time you'll gain through efficiency and control and the peace of mind that you'll gain will be 10 times what you spend on your 5 to 10 minute daily planning sessions. The real win is that it puts you in control of your life. It allows you to start inserting tasks and projects that you choose that align with your goals and your life balance agenda. And it allows your big brain to think about something else, something more important. You let the process juggle the balls, and you do the work and get stuff done. And I'm going to ask you an important question, and think about it before you answer. Are you willing to spend, let's say, a half an hour of prep work for your week before it starts, and five minutes a day, if it would put you in control of your life balance and enable you to reach your goals? I can do anything. I can be anything. I am not afraid. And now for today's featured interview. Dave Spandorfer, been uh, trying to hook up with you for a couple of weeks. How are you doing this morning? Doing great, doing great. Doing great. How are you? So you're down in Austin, Texas, huh? Austin's a great city for uh, yeah. for exploring on foot, actually. Did you get out at all? Yeah, we did. Uh, it really is an amazing city, especially in December when every day is around 75 degrees out. And it's an incredible running city, too. Uh, yep. Just where we were, there were five running stores in a two-mile radius, and everywhere you go, there are runners. It's it's wonderful. Yeah, and it, it's sort of an outpost in the middle of this great southern, I don't know how to put it, less than athletic population. <laughs> yeah, 
Austin is uh, definitely different from the rest of Texas. Did you get out on the, the river walk? Did, yeah. We, we ran all along the river. We're able to really explore the city and, and do some do some running, do some races. I was a lot and it was great just being in a amazing fitness community. All right. So I want to talk to you because you have this business going and it's uh, a bit of a charity. It's called, hopefully I'm pronouncing it right, Janji? Dead on, yeah. It's Janji right. means promise in Malay? Yeah. yeah. We came up with that name in order to really reflect our business. Our whole goal is to uh, make a promise of making the world a better place through running. So give me the uh, the 200 words or less. Give me the, the elevator pitch. Janji is a running apparel company that gives back. Uh, each piece of our apparel is designed after a country's flag. And then the proceeds help that country with food or water problems. So our Kenyan apparel gives water to Kenya, and our Haiti apparel gives nutritional medicine to Haiti. And our goal is to connect runners with people with food and water. Yeah, it's interesting because the vehicle you're using is a more direct connection. So it's not just buy our stuff and we give money to charity. It's this specific piece of clothing is designed around the theme of that country and you will be giving money directly to that theme in that country right absolutely that's exactly our goal yeah so i thought that was really interesting the way you actually went the next step to connect the specific apparel piece to a cause we were kind of surprised that no one's done that before because we think it's a no-brainer people want to know what they're giving back to you know they want to know where they're helping they want to know what they're giving and, and the more that we can do that, the better. Yep. I was looking through your catalog. The stuff isn't your standard cotton giveaway T-shirt kind <laughs> of, you know, give to the charity even though you don't like my shirt kind of stuff. It's actually cool looking. You know, I, I like the Haiti one because it's pink with palm trees, which is, you know, just my lack of style. That's perfect. That's almost like a Hawaiian shirt. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, we appreciate that. That's one of our upcoming shirts for 2013. Yeah. Yeah. And it all looked like good stuff. Actually, you know, a lot of times when you get into running apparel, it ends up being designed by non-runners and it's just not, it doesn't fit, right? And it's not functional. But this stuff looks like you actually had some runners involved in the creation. Mike and I are both heavy runners. We ran in college. We run marathons over, we run over 70 miles a week, every week. And to have something that we don't want to run in did not sound like a good idea for us. So we designed this with the whole goal is of we could do every run in the apparel that we're wearing. And we want to make it as performance-oriented as possible with still having that social cause. So tell me the story about the moment that lightning struck for you and Mike. And that aha moment? It was actually on the way to the 2010 Division Three Track and Field Championship meet. Uh, we were on a bus, Mike and I were both running the 5K and the 10K, and we were just so happy to be running, just so happy to be with our friends and just doing the sport that we, we loved. And so we wanted to try and figure out a way to give back through our sport. And we thought about like, doing a race for a cause, but the problem with that, what we felt, was that the giving begins and ends on race day. It's not a continual thing of giving back through the sport and for this cause every run. We thought, you know, wouldn't it be cool to create running apparel that helps a, a really big cause? And we came up with a food and water crisis. I didn't really know this before. I delved much deeper into this um, just because it is more of a silent problem. But over 1 billion people lack access to clean water and nearly 1 billion people are undernourished or malnourished. And I think as runners, we are very conscious of the, the water that we drink and the nutrition that we, we take in. And so this is a cause that really resonates with runners. Runners, almost by definition, are philanthropic. And so combining those two, we were able to, to come up with John G and, and hopefully make a, a really big difference in the world through running in a way that's not just a race. That's quite a big leap, though, from going from, hey, let's, uh, let's see if we can give back to you know, let's start a company that's operating <laughs> on multiple continents. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely a process. We were lucky enough to go to a school, Washington University in St. Louis, and we applied for this big competition with really good mentors, people who would help us. 
And we ended up winning a, a pretty big chunk of change. And then we won another business competition out in Colorado Springs. And combined, that gave us the funding and the confidence to, to really move forward with this plan. We were fortunate enough along the way to have some really great people who believed in us and some really great running store owners uh, like those at Big River Running Company to Are you cutting out on me, man? All right. You were talking about your work with Washington University when you started to cut out and, and the prize you won and and that sort of thing. I mean, it's it certainly for, you know, somebody in your in your early 20s, that's quite a leap to go there. Do you think, you know, your generation seems to be, I'm a little bit older than you, just a little bit, but uh, your generation seems to be more willing to do these sort of things, these these sort of help the world sort of things, and and seems to have the confidence to think that they can do it too. Do you do you think that's true? I definitely believe it. I think this whole social consumerism is a relatively recent phenomenon that's very much taken the hold of, of my generation. And I think I think the reason behind that is we want we want more meaning from the stuff that we buy. It's not just good enough to say all right, I want to to buy this this product, um, I want to, yeah, our, our, my generation wants to have some meaning behind it, some story behind it, and something bigger behind it. And John, I mean, John Jew very much fits that picture. And I don't think we could have come up with John, I don't think John Jew would have been as successful 20, 30 years ago. I think it's something that really works best in today's generation. Because of the connectivity, you can make that link between the cause and the people. Yeah. Exactly, and the meaning that that customers want to have um, in the stuff that they buy. So let me ask you about, you know, you're a runner. You've been a competitive runner. Do you think your background in distance running was an enabler for you to make this leap into your charitable company? Definitely, absolutely. Beyond just the, the whole running aspect of the company, I don't think that I could have done something with social entrepreneurship if it wasn't for running. I think running just teaches you so many life skills, such as the importance of, of discipline. So in college, we would, I would get up every every morning at around 5.55 to go head over to practice, uh, where most college students would sleep until 10 o'clock. I think the whole idea of, of training for something, not seeing those immediate results, but training for something long-term and building to a, a really big goal uh, it's a really important life lesson that most people don't get. Most people seek that immediate gratification, whereas runners, it's all about working hard over a long period of time. Uh, day to day, it may not seem like you're going much, going you know, too far along, but you look back and you can see all the progress that you've made. And it's, it's very, very much the same case with starting a company and doing social entrepreneurship from scratch. Yeah, so it's almost like if you look at the way people mature, typically the one of the advanced or later maturity stages in a person's life is when they decide it's time to give back or to help something else or to help something beyond themselves. And it's almost like yeah. your experience with running accelerated your ability to, to get to that maturity stage. Yeah, I definitely think so. Uh, just racing for a cause, being part of something bigger, uh, just like you were saying, a lot of people view it as first you do good, and, or first you do well, and then you do good. And as a runner, I want to, we want to merge those two and, and do well and do good from the get-go, not just after I retire or something like that. Do you think it's easier these days for ordinary folks to make a difference globally? I think so. Yeah, I just think the amount of information that we have on our fingertips now versus what it was like 20 years ago. I think that there's so many different ways now to get involved, whereas before it was just the traditional philanthropic models. It's really exciting. It's really cool. And um, I think you're seeing a lot more of that impact from just regular people. So, I mean, this wasn't easy, though. You had to do a lot of work. You had to do a lot of hard work. I'm sure there was a plenty of people who told you you were crazy, right? <laughs> yeah, including myself sometimes. How did you work through that? Um, it's 
this goes back to being a runner, right? I mean, people tell you you're crazy for doing a marathon. People are saying, like, you know, why would you do this? There's no logical reason for you to want to get up really early in the morning and run. There's no logical reason for you to want to do a 15-mile run. There's no reason for you to do a 26.2-mile race. It's all ridiculous. But you learn a lot from running, and you learn to really believe in yourself. And that's very much the case with what we had with John G. Is, is we believed that we could do something that other people thought was either unlikely or impossible. And putting in that those work, almost like putting in those miles, it, it does pay off in the end. And the harder you work, just like the more you train, the better it all gets and the, and the more exciting the whole process becomes. Now, I, I actually, in my career, I, I have worked with the apparel industry, and it's ruthless. I mean, as industries go, that's one of them that's fairly ruthless. You know, cost, very cost-conscious, very, uh, there's just so much there that's very competitive and ruthless. So how do you, a charitable organization, navigate an industry like that? It's not always the easiest. Because we're so different, because there's no other running apparel company that gives back, we're able to really carve out that, that niche in the market that's worked out well for us. We have some great partners overseas that are helping us make this, that make the whole process a lot easier. But you're right, it's, a, it's, it's definitely a constant challenge, and you always, have to, you always have to be thinking two seasons down the line, you always have to be thinking, you know, what's next, what do things go wrong, because you want to deliver the best product possible, and you don't want to get caught behind the times. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, because um, in the apparel industry, people are setting their styles. They're putting their orders in 18 months ahead of time. Yeah, we, we didn't realize that at first, but <laughs> we've now we've now picked that up. Luckily, stores believed in us from the, from the get-go. They said, oh, you know, we have a lot of our orders booked, but we'll fit you guys in. And now that we have stuff already developed for, for fall 2013, now working on, on spring 2014, we're, we're getting caught up, but it wasn't the easiest thing at first. Yeah, it's interesting because what you just told me is that the the reason you were able to survive in this sort of hostile environment was that you have a unique business value, a unique business angle, so to speak, which is tying it directly, the piece to the marketing, which is cool. So you've discovered some secret to success there. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know about uh, secret to success, but it's, it's luckily been, been working for us and because, I mean, because we're so passionate about the cause, I think it really reflects um, in the things that we do, and people get excited about it, too. Right. Just being down and hating being able to talk about that, people get excited about it. People say, like, you know, like, with this one piece of apparel, I can really make a difference, too. And so it just it just cascades really nicely. Uh, and once you have people going into a store talking about John G, being like, hey, why don't you guys carry John G, then that's an incentive for stores to order from us which is really nice. So what do you think your biggest challenges have been over the last couple of years bringing this to market? Mm, probably because they're inexperienced. You know, one thing about being young is that you have this ignorance. Right. Of, <laughs> I just the good and bad of being young is that you have this ignorance, right? You're like, I can do anything. Like, I'm young. Like, the whole world is my oyster. Right. So in, in the beginning, we, we thought, like, apparel manufacturing, like, I don't know anything about it. I was a history major in college. <laughs> Mike was an urban studies major in college. We didn't know anything about it, but we thought, you know, hey, like, this, this can't be that hard. And it was. It was very hard. Like, we, we didn't realize how difficult it would be. But now that we've, we finally have a really good organization that we work with that's very socially conscious, that does it ethically, does it all the right way, and is very communicative with us, we certainly have, have hit our stride nicely with that. I would also just say trying to figure out how to do not too much, not too little. Right. Because with the apparel industry... People want a lot of options, but you can't you can't have that many options because you get overloaded with too much stuff, and that hurts your cash flow, and that hurts your ability to, to sell really well. And you know we want to be able to focus, but offer enough stuff at the same time. All right, people don't don't realize how complex a shirt is because you've got uh, yeah. you know you've got a men's and a woman's, you've got five colors, and within each one of those you have sixteen sizes. So now you tell me how many I should buy. Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, you should buy all of them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, at your soul, you're these passionate guys, young guys. If you look ahead two years or three years or five years, how do you keep that passion? Uh, yeah, um, it's a really important question. 
one thing that's nice for Mike and I is that we don't have like a family or we don't have a mortgage. We don't even have pets, right? So we're able to have that all-encompassing passion for what we're doing. But, you know, Mike may find a, a beautiful woman and, and get married and the distractions can come and it can get tough. But I think one thing that's really going to keep us grounded in what we're doing and passionate about what we're doing is, is one, talking to other runners all the time and seeing how, you know, how they feel about John G, making sure that they always love John G. And then two, also visiting countries that we're working with. Yeah. You know, simply seeing the impact that we can make, whether it's in, in Rwanda or it's in the U.S., you know, because our John G. logo apparel for the spring is going to be helping a cause here in the U.S., and, and seeing just what one pair of shorts can do, I think as long as we have that, the passion is always going to be there. Because yeah, and, we, and the other thing I noticed was they're not outrageously expensive. I mean, there's a little bit of a premium on it, but not outrageous in the sense that if I'm wandering around the expo down in Boston, they're going to want me to pay 80 bucks for a pair of shorts. You know, and you guys are selling them <laughs> for 30 or 40. Thinking morally about it, do I really want to give Adidas 80 bucks? Because they happen to be at the Boston Marathon Expo with the Boston logo on it, or do I want to give you guys thirty bucks so I can help somebody with seeds for two years and staying alive? Most times, people say charitable stuff's too expensive. I guess what I'm trying to say is you found a way to balance that well. Yeah, we're big believers that giving back shouldn't be a major sacrifice to your wallet. We've come up with some ways to really keep the price down, and one of that is having not too much stuff. Right, so if you're producing a lot of one thing to get the economies of scale, and then you can have you can keep the price low. And the more that we can do that, the more accessible that we can make our apparel, the more openly the more apparel that we can we can sell. I agree, that's a really important part of it. The question people always ask me, and I don't know why they ask me, but we have people out there who are getting up every day and trying to get their runs in and going off to a busy career and family and all this stuff. How do you balance? How do you maintain your balance? You're traveling internationally. You're running 70 miles a week. You're running a company. How do you how do you keep your balance? <laughs> I think I think running complements a busy life. If you look at some of the busiest people in the world, they find that that exercise ultimately makes them more productive, makes them happier, lets them sleep better when they're actually trying to fall asleep. I mean, if you look at the president of the United States, right, probably one of the busiest men in the world, he dedicates an hour every day just in the gym. And that's one thing that he says will never change. Like, he has to have that time. And for me, I think that's really important. Like, when I wake up early in the morning and go for that run, like, I'm ready to go the rest of the day. And then also, I feel better. I do sleep better. I work better. It's a whole, it's a whole process. And then, of course, lucky enough that you and I are in the, in the, the running industry, we can complement what we do that. Yeah, and, and that's right. what I tell people more and more these days. You see executives who have that, who are, you know, triathletes and runners, because it's not an extra thing to do. It's actually almost 100% overlap with what you're doing. It helps your thinking, it helps your sleeping, it helps your working. So it's, it's, an, it's more of an overlap. It, you're not sacrificing anything, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Definitely. So I'm with you on that 100%. <laughs> so uh, let me let me wrap things up by asking you the the hard question, which is, what are the top three things you've learned through this, and would you have done anything differently? That is a good question. I would say to do things differently. Let me start out with the, the top three things that I learned. One is that everything always takes longer than you think it's going to take. Yeah. Right. You'll say to yourself, oh, yeah, we should have this ready by this date. Like, that'll be no problem, and then it'll be, like, twice as long. And that's just the reality. It's just things move slower than what you have in your head. Uh, and you just need to, we've started to account for that, being like, oh, well, it should clearly be done by next month. And they're like, oh, well, you know, these things could go wrong, you know, because we're not really in control of this, so it'll probably end up being too much. I would say thing number two is that, you always have to surround yourself with just really smart, awesome people all the time. Because so much of what, what, what really keeps us going and what makes John successful is, is having those really awesome people to work with who, who believe in the mission, see where we can be going in the next six months, two years, five years, uh, and then people who, who really, really want to see John G. just flourish. And, and it and, sounds like they're positive as well. Exactly. Yeah, you can't be surrounding yourself with pessimists. Absolutely. And then I would say 
Thing number three is just you can't underestimate the importance of having just a great product and great relationship with those who buy your product. I think at first we really came up with the cause and then because Mike and I don't have as much experience in apparel manufacturing, we just thought it was going to be a really easy process. But having that, that attention to detail to making really something great is what will help it move off the shelf because people may they look at it in the first place for the cause, but if it's not a really great product, no one's going to buy it, right? And no. so we were fortunate enough to make that pivot relatively early where we think we came up with something really awesome, uh, really amazing for this past summer and some really amazing stuff for this next spring. Yeah, I mean, the stuff that I was looking at in the catalog looks really sharp. It looks like good stuff. And, and plus, you want people to wear it, right? Because that's going to be your best word-of-mouth advertising. Absolutely, 100%. All the spring stuff is going to be available on February 1st. Yeah, you say that, but I go back to point number one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, we, we think to ourselves, hey, that's going to be available on January 1st, and then we, uh, we push it back. Yeah, so that's until the vendors call. <laughs> <laughs> what would be your final advice to folks who are out there, just normal, everyday Joes who might be listening to us? I would say that the hardest thing in life is really just to get your foot out the door. And once you put yourself in motion, things become a lot easier. It's, it's really scary whether it's stepping outside for a run or starting a business to just make that first initial step. And for me, sometimes I'm like, oh, it's really cold out. It's disgusting. Like, I do not want to go out for a run. But after those first five minutes, you know, I go for the run, and then when I'm finished, I'm always glad I did it. And then the same thing applies with, with entrepreneurship and, and making these big career changes, the first steps that you're taking, it can get pretty scary. And then, you know, maybe the conditions aren't always great outside. But at the end of the day, you're always really happy that you did it. Right. And and doing John Z is the best thing that I've ever done in my life. I'm really proud of what we've been able to do to help change communities. And I'm really looking forward to what we can do in the future. And it's not always easy. But at the end of the day, you know, look back, I'm always glad I took that first step. All right. So there you have it. David Spandorfer says, take action. Give us the links for where people will find this stuff and make some purchases. You can go to www.runjanji.com. That's R-U-N-J-A-N-J-I.com. Or you can go to your local specialty running store. We're available in around 100 running stores around the country. So, yeah, check out our stuff there. All right. Great talking to you, man. Have a great day. All right. Thank you so much. I really appreciate okay, it. Okay. Ciao. Take care. Hitch up your tights because now we're going to talk tips and tricks for endurance sports. Step-up runs, surge runs, and cheating. I know I'm guilty of using phrases and not explaining them. I do this when I talk about my training. Two types of training runs you hear me talk about are step-up runs and surge runs. What is a step-up run? A step-up run is a type of tempo training designed to give you strength and confidence in your races. The theme of a step-up run is to start out slow and incrementally step up your pace and finish strong. You can do these Using distances or time, you can measure them with pace, heart rate, or perceived effort. An example from my training would be an hour and 20-minute step-up. This would be a 10-minute warm-up, run 10 minutes in zone 2, step up to 30 minutes in zone 3, and then step up to 20 minutes in zone 4, and then cool down for 10 minutes. These are very challenging tempo runs, but they are very rewarding and very specific to building the kind of fitness you need for racing. They teach you a number of key racing lessons and condition you to a number of key racing competencies. First, they drill you in what the different effort levels at different paces feel like. They get you comfortable with these effort levels and paces, like building a quiver full of arrows that you can choose from in your race. Second, they train you, condition you, to build into a race and finish strong. This is the awesome but seldom attainable negative split race strategy that allows you to close the race like a pro. And I speak from experience that the last couple of successful Bostons I've run have been negative split runs. 
And there is nothing more wonderful than dropping the pace and powering down the backside of heartbreak towards the sit-go sign while everyone fades around you. The step-up runs teach you to spread the effort appropriately to have it when you need it and finish strong. And finally, as importantly, the step-up run teaches you to become comfortable with discomfort. Those last 20 minutes in Zone 4, in the example I gave, are a small slice of hell on earth. I've had to walk away from, to pull up short in many of these training sessions. But by testing, I have learned my limits and what it feels like to run at the edge and hold that needle in the red zone while your body screams at you to stop. That's what a step-up run is. The other bread-and-butter run that Coach, Coach Jeff assigns is called a surge run. And these come in two flavors, one shorter and one longer. The mechanics of a surge run is to run in a relaxed zone two or three, but throw in a zone three, four surge every 20 minutes, and then close the run in a zone four at the end. And again, this conditions your body to close a race well. The, the surges in the middle of the run mix things up and keep it interesting. An example of this for me would be a two-and-a-half-hour surge run, which is basically a long run with surges every 20 minutes. What does it teach you? Well, the first purpose of the run is to get your body used to the different effort levels. But more importantly, it allows you to practice those in-race transitions. So there's lots of times in a race where you will be forced out of your comfort zone, mid-race, for a hill or a competitive surge. Your body needs to know how to transition into this harder effort and then out of it without falling apart. And part of the definition of fitness is this ability to seamlessly transition between states of effort. It teaches you how to control the intensity dials on your machine. And that's what a surge run is. So let me close this little vignette with a word on cheating. No, not that kind of cheating. I mean cheating on the things that are going to make you successful. Where I am in my running career, I can't run every day. I can't put in those 50, 60, 70 mile weeks on the road. My body won't take the abuse. The good news is I don't have to. I've found a balance where I can train three days a week, running, keeping it at a level of volume and intensity that keeps the injury specters from haunting my door. But it's not just the running. It's the other four core and bike workouts that I'm doing and the stretch and the foot massage and all these things that are allowing me to pursue the marathon again. And I hear you folks talking. I hear you talk about not doing your stretching, your core, and your cross-training. You can't cheat. You have to bring that same commitment, consistency, passion, and intensity to these cross-training workouts. No cheating. This cross-training is not a secondary activity, a red-headed stepchild of your running. They are part of a whole, a holistic approach to fitness that I hope will keep me on the trails for years to come, competing at a worthy level for my fitness and ability. So the next time you think about skipping your core workout or mailing it in or doing it half-heartedly, remember what I said. No cheating. The woods are lovely, dark, and deep. But I have promises to keep, and miles to go before I sleep, and miles to go before I sleep. Ah, my friends, comrades, we have come to the end of another Run Run Live podcast, another ploy of the capitalist intelligentsia saboteurs. Yes, I've been listening to the Russian Rulers podcast again. I love history. And I love life. As athletes, we fall prey to the very human trap of always wanting more, faster, better. We're always looking forward to a time when everything will be better, will be perfect. And no matter where you are or how fast you are, you'll always have the same challenges. Many of them internal, as it turns out. That's life. No matter how many hills you conquer, there are always more hills to conquer. It's the process of conquering. That is where the joy should be found, in the struggle. It's okay to look ahead, but remember to enjoy today, now, and the present. So given the success of my dairy race, and success here is defined as having walked away from the train wreck uninjured, I've signed up for Martha's Vineyard 20-miler 
in a couple of weeks and the Eastern States 20 miler in March. This combined with my training should give me a great shot at Boston. So you get to hear me say Martha's Vineyard many more times in the coming shows. Looking back over the last year or so, you know, I've seen a lot of changes in our little clique of running podcasters. We've seen deaths and births and divorces and love affairs and failed businesses. It's, you know, it seems that our little clique, our little age group is prone to life changes and transitions. And I haven't ever shared much personal information with you folks. And I suppose in one sense, that's selfish of me. You've gone through the injury cycle with me and the heartaches and triumphs of my running persona, but you don't know me personally or professionally that well. I had Tom, a, a uh, listener, come up to me in the airport today and say, you're Chris Russell, <laughs> which was cool, but potentially disconcerting. And I told him, I'm waiting for the day when uh, some client leans across the conference table and says something similar, and I have to explain the difference between Clark Kent and Superman. For my own sanity, and because I think at some point I'll probably need some emotional support, let me share that I have my share of life changes and transitions. I'm no different. I have those challenges. That's the stuff of life. I am not immune. But like it or not, this avatar that I have created for this podcast decided early on to put all that stuff aside because it's not about me. It's about you. This is my service, as selfish as it is, and in a sense, it, it completes me. I do know that life is change and transition, and you have to be happy with the striving, with the living, and with the changes. If I haven't before, if I have been remiss, I want to thank you for letting me find this avatar's voice over the years and for letting me have this conversation with you. As you know, Team Hoyt is changing the world, and I'm running the Boston Marathon for them this year to help. And thanks for the folks who have been pitching in, and I would very much appreciate if you would help me. Help them change the world by clicking on the donation banner on the right side of my webpage at www.runrunlive.com. And you can still get in on the famous Kickstarter project to create an audio version of my second book of running stories. I'm pushing out chapters six and seven for distribution to investors as we speak. If you're interested, you can find that link on the website as well or in the show notes. Just search on Kickstarter, you'll find it. So speaking of history, we were speaking of history, Napoleon said that it takes force and spirit to win a battle. But of the two, spirit is the more important. I'll see you out there. Thank you for riding along. My name is Chris, and that is CYKT Russell on all the social media and email systems. The podcast is free for you because I like doing it. So, it is only your internal moral compass that will compel you to let me know what you think by leaving a comment on my website at www.runrunlive.com. Or even better, if you want to change my world, check out my books in regular Kindle or audio format. The links are on my website and in the show notes. And if you want to be kept in the loop, you can sign up for the email list on runrunlive.com as well. I will send you the show notes. So remember, love life, do epic stuff, and I'll see you out there. <laughs>